Well, thanks for joining us again. We're going to be uh, having a conversation today that stems from conversations I've been having with some students recently, as well as some of former colleagues, as well as some family and friends pertaining to the issues of the most recent dietary supplements to hit the market that you really can think of as dietary supplements, even though they happen to be medications, in which we kind of start off by discussing the idea of waiting for some sort of pill to give me the same benefits of exercise, to somehow be able to control weight without having to worry about uh, restricting when I'm eating, as in the time-restricted feeding or how much I'm eating on a daily basis, such as what we see with some of the intermittent fasting concepts. And once again, those concepts get usually confused with each other where people will refer to as time-restricted eating as intermittent fasting, but we covered that in the previous talk. Trying to understand what happens to be the best fad diet that's out there, and once again, we've had conversations about this in the past, but what they really are more interested in than anything else is kind of trying to understand what to make about all of these amazing, wonderful responses they've been hearing and reading about within the news over the summer and before the summer about some drugs, some anti-obesity medications, which really aren't anti-obesity medications. They're more anti-diabetic medications. They're medications that are used in conjunction with interventions, lifestyle interventions to help control type 2 diabetes stemming from overfatness. And what's been happening recently is that These medications have been prescribed off-label as they're being prescribed for things that aren't what they're intended to be prescribed for because in individuals who are morbidly overfat, morbidly obese, or people who have metabolic syndrome stemming from overfatness and obesity issues, we notice significant amounts of weight loss. We'll get into what the types of weight loss are as we go through the discussion here. And the concept or the question that keeps getting asked is, shouldn't anybody that wants to lose weight be given the opportunity to take these medications? And can't they just take a drug to help them out losing whatever weight they want to lose? And a lot of myths and misconceptions that come into play, well, let's talk about that. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard, or believed to be true, about how the human body works, and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy! So let's start by examining some of the results that we see, some of the evidence that we have about weight loss. What's the research tell us? And does the research match all of the buzz that we're seeing and what we're reading about in the press. And what we need to do is we need to break this into two distinct categories. We need to break this into the dietary supplement category and then into the prescription medication category. When we're talking about the prescription medication category, we're going to specifically look at the off-label medications, the anti-diabetic medications that have become more popular over the last few months. And so let's start off with the supplements and we'll take a look at what the evidence says about the quote-unquote fat loss supplements, the thermogenic, the fat burners. And based off of multiple meta-analytical reviews, 
including one that myself and a, a former student of mine published back in 2020. What we see in the evidence is that there is no additional benefit that is obtained beyond the benefit we get from diet and exercise by taking the fat loss supplement, the quote unquote fat burners. And that holds true for all classifications of fat burners as it relates to weight loss. Diet and exercise alone is more efficient and more effective than diet and exercise with the supplement. There are a couple of hypotheses as to why that happens to be. One of them has to deal with feeding regulations and the cognitive analysis that is done by the dieter, by the person attempting to lose weight, where they feel, oh, I'm taking this fat loss supplement so I can continue to eat as I've been eating, continue to do other things the way in which I was doing before taking the supplement without understanding what actually needs to go into the total change necessary in order to see weight loss. In this, we see greater fat loss mass when we have resistance exercise in a hypertrophic muscle growing level of resistance than what we see with the endurance exercise, what is typically thought of as the uh, fat burning exercise. We don't see any difference in any of the cardiometabolic measures. When we talk about cardiometabolic measures, cardiometabolic measures are those things that are associated with uh, lipids in the blood, cholesterol in the blood, or diabetic measures. And we see no difference in between just doing diet and exercise and doing diet and exercise and taking the fat loss supplements. What is of importance to note as relates to the fat loss supplements is that supplements have a higher rate of adverse incidents than diet and exercise alone. The most common of the adverse incidents are all cardiac in nature, including irregular heartbeats, excessively high heart rates. There's also indications for having excessive amounts of fluid loss in terms of sweat loss leading to dehydration issues with the fat loss supplements that are not seen with diet and exercise. There is increased gastrointestinal issues. There's increased adverse instances of headaches, in particular migraine-induced headaches, with the fat loss supplements relative to just the diet and exercise. What is interesting is that diet and exercise alone were better for changing cardiorespiratory measures, in particular blood pressures and heart rates following exercise, relative to following exercise with the fat loss supplements. And so based off of the evidence that we have from the meta-analytical reviews, we can safely state that the use of fat loss supplements is not necessary in terms of having effective and beneficial weight loss, effective and beneficial cardiorespiratory responses, or effective and efficient cardiometabolic responses. Diet and exercise seems to be as good, if not better than, in terms of its efficiency, than taking the fat loss supplement or the fat burning supplement with the use of diet and exercise. There are some individual studies that might indicate benefit and greater benefit from taking the supplement relative to not taking the supplement. However, when we put this into the totality of all the evidence that is there, Within the normal curve that gets established, there is no benefit. This is where we have to be cognizant of the strength of evidence being presented to us 
remembering that what one study shows is what one study shows. And just because it happens to hold true in one study doesn't necessarily mean it's going to hold true in all studies. There were a couple of issues with some of the studies, in particular uh, population and the ability to have generalized responses across populations based off of the study population that we that we're looking at. And so that's the fat loss supplement side of of it, just in a very brief overview. We'll get into a little bit more detail in terms of the physiology of what's going on as we as we work our way through here. The newest drugs, you put quotes around the newest because they're not really that new. We've had them for a couple of decades now. Are the GLP-1 agonists or GLP-1 receptor activators. And so GLP-1 is glucagon-like peptide or glucagon-like protein, number one. And we call it glucagon-like protein because it's a protein that's going to come from the larger protein that would be glucagon, which is a hormone that is involved with regulation of glucose production from the liver, release of glycogen from the muscles, and regulation of appetite control with a whole bunch of other hormones. GLP-1 is a hormone that structurally similar to glucagon, but does not exhibit the same actions as glucagon does. And we'll get into what they are here as we work our way through the, through the discussion. There are a host of GLP-1 pharmaceuticals. The most common one within the news recently is the Ozempic, but that's just one of a number of GLP-1 agonist GLP-1 medications that are on the market. And they were developed based off of discovery of these hormones that have an impact on insulin sensitivity and insulin response. And it was developed in an effort to assist with the other anti-diabetic medications that were being prescribed. Most of them are going to be injectables. There is a couple of oral medications out there. We'll get to what the evidence says in terms of what is a benefit within the GLP family of medications as we work our way through here. And so very quickly, let's go ahead and let's look at what the evidence says before we get into what the physiology of what the dietary supplements should do and what the GLP-1 medications should do and what we have to be concerned about as it relates to some of the popularity of some of these drugs. So what's the indication as it relates to weight loss? If we look at the preponderance of the evidence, and once again, we have to have a caveat on this because the populations that have been studied are the excessively overfat, excessively obese, pre-diabetic or diabetic communities. These are not everyday normal individuals. Within the populations of the of individuals utilizing these medications as part of the anti-diabetic or diabetic treatments. The use of the GLP-1 drugs exhibited a greater benefit in total weight loss and relative weight loss that is percent of mass lost as well as changes in BMI index, the drugs were a greater benefit than not taking the drugs in terms of the GLP-1 medications. But there's a caveat on this, and that's what's being reported in terms of the findings. The findings have been reported do not show differentiation in terms of the mass that is lost. It's simply just total mass loss. And what we do know is that it's not about how much weight is being lost, but what type of weight is being lost. 
if we look at what we see in terms of the evidence of diet and exercise in regards to the overfat treatments, it's not about total amount of weight that's being lost, but the total amount of fat mass that's being lost. And that's because fat mass has a greater impact on health status in terms of generation of disease status than fat-free mass. So muscles and bone mass is of greater health benefit, provides a positive health uh, status to the individual, whereas fat mass provides a negative benefit. It creates a higher likelihood for having a diseased status. And so if we look at the evidence, what what we see is that taking the drugs leads to greater weight loss, but there's no indication as to what type of weight is being lost and if it's a beneficial weight loss in terms of long-term weight loss. Now, even though we see greater weight loss with the use of the drugs, we see greater weight rebound following termination of the drugs. And so even though we're seeing during the treatment phase higher benefit, we see a loss of that benefit at a higher rate following termination, especially within individuals who lost greater percentages and greater total mass during the treatment phase. Part of this might go into where does GLP-1 fit within the regulatory processes and the feedback regulation of both nutrient utilization, where everybody thinks about in terms of energy balance, which is a misnomer, and misconception. But part of it has to deal with how does GLP-1 impact the feedback regulation within what I like to think of as the long loop and short loop, the pull to push away responses of feeding regulation. And there's been a couple of decent studies out there that have looked at that issue and have noted that there is a greater change in feeding satiation and in the responsiveness to how likely I am to go ahead and eat or not eat when taking one of these types of GLP-1 medications. But upon termination, we see a larger swing back to pre-treatment eating behaviors. And so there's, there's an issue with some of the findings here. And part of it goes back to why we don't see huge differences between doing diet and exercise and doing diet and exercise with the quote-unquote fat loss supplement or with the thermogenic supplement, where because I'm taking this medication that is changing how I'm responding to eating, I'm not teaching myself how to go about with a lifestyle modification that I'm going to self-select towards. And that's something we have to remember is that when we're looking at long-term modifications, long-term benefits to any of the plans here, whether we're talking about just doing diet and exercise or whether we're talking about doing the diet and exercise with the use of this GLP-1 or any of the other anti-obesity medications or anti-diabetic medications that are out there, if I'm not going to self-select to do the behavior that I'm being asked to do, I'm not going to do it long-term. And so that's part of the issue that we see with the rebounding. That's part of the issues that we see with the changes in my satiation, hunger, and likelihood of eating following the treatments. If we once again look at the cardiometabolic effects, the effects to my circulating levels of lipids and cholesterol, and my indexes of or my indices of um, diabetes, 
my circulating levels of glucose, my circulating levels of insulin, and my levels of A1C. We see greater benefit with the drugs and the lifestyle intervention than with just doing lifestyle interventions. That doesn't mean the lifestyle interventions were not not effective or efficient. We've seen in a number of meta-analytical studies, as well as in a number of large-scale population studies, intervention studies, lifestyle intervention is very effective at changing diabetic indices independent of weight loss, where if we goal plan out correctly, we can use the timelines for when we would see changes in morphology, changes in physiology, changes in my body composition, changes in my body mass, relative to changes in how my body is functioning, my actual physiology. If we goal plan correctly, we can actually make interventions long-term without needing the medications. In terms of the non-diabetic indexes, the cholesterols, the lipids, those factors, the drugs were either equal to, and in some cases slightly better than, not taking the drugs within the intervention programs for cholesterol, for the cholesterol measures. In terms of total cholesterol, there is a slight betterment that we see in a few of the studies as it relates to the very low density lipoproteins, the VLDLs. There is no evidence that has been uh, reported to show differences that indicate a change in effectiveness and a change in or one side being of more benefit than the other in terms of cardiorespiratory measures, heart rate, blood pressure, respiration rate, measures of cardiorespiratory and cardiovascular health. And so that's kind of the summary of what we see in terms of the outcome measures, which really is what most people tend to be worried about. What are the outcome measures? What are the, what's the scale say? What do my, how do my clothes fit? Those factors. But those factors are only part of the overall story. And so what we really need to do is, and we'll do this here, is delve into the physiology of what's going on. And let's try to understand why do we see differences in some cases and why do we see no differences in other cases? Well, thanks for listening to the first part of the conversation here. We will pick up with the physiology and why we see what we see or don't see what we don't see in part two. If you like what we're putting out there, please make sure you give us a thumbs up. If you haven't subscribed yet, please make sure you go ahead and subscribe. Both will help us out with all of the metrics and algorithms within the programs. We hope that you are enjoying what we're putting out there and are sharing what we have published so far. Please make sure you're coming back as we'll be putting out some more stuff regularly. And part two will come out very short, if not already out, based on when you are listening to this uh, podcast episode. Thanks.